0: This episode of the Arbitration Station podcast is brought to you by MB Kemp LLP. MB Kemp is a nimble, adaptable, and current international law practice with strong east-west links based in London, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, and Hong Kong. For more information, visit www.kempllp.com or visit us on LinkedIn at Kemp LLP. Hello, and welcome to the Arbitration Station.
1: Is that the main issue of ISDS today?
0: So, we cannot invite Joel to the next episode.
2: You're the native speaker. It can't be very unique. Unique means one of a kind. It's either unique or it's not. It's like you're, you're either pregnant or you're not. <laughs>
0: Did you say Gayald?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. With a D? I should not pronounce the D.
0: I'm getting DCF tattooed on my neck tomorrow, <laughs> actually. It's a question I'm putting up there. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the arbitration station. My name is Brian Kotick. My name is Joel Dahlquist.
1: And I'm Sadia Bhatti.
0: And we are your co-hosts for another episode of the Arbitration Station podcast covering both commercial and investment arbitration, 66% serious substance and 33% general ponderings and musings of the arbitration world, and 1% resentment (laughs) because you guys got so much good feedback about being together and I wasn't there and I resent it completely (laughs) Uh, uh, I to be fair,
2: I mean it's always better when you're not there, but to be fair, I think it was <laughs> oh it, I think God. it was mostly that we were in person oh. and it had <laughs> limited
1: one of the comments I got was Oh, it was so nice to have you and Joel together because it reminded me of the times where it was only Brian and Joel, and I was like, "Wait, is that a compliment, or is that?" A- so,
2: so who's the who's the like, uniting factor in those two oh, wow. setups? Oh, Maybe wow. it should just be me in person
0: with myself, Graham standing. Well, uh, I'll, I'll allow it a couple of times, but if I start seeing some sharp elbows, I will hostile takeover.
2: <laughs> we are separate again now though. I think the whole point was that we should try to be together and we're still more or less in the we're in the same city. We're all in London, right? We can skip yes. the where in the world are you? Or are yes. you in Paris, Sadia?
1: No, no. I came back from Paris yesterday. I'm in London right now, in my office in London. Yeah, so yeah. we're
2: like a mile away from each other, but, but still We're doing too this busy. Summer's.
1: We're too yeah. important. We're too busy to meet in real life now. Um, we uh, can't
0: after Sorry. next week. After next week <laughs> I'll be able to. Until then, don't talk to me or look at me. <laughs> well, do you have you have a hearing next week? Yes, correct? I'm off to Oman, Muscat, for the first time. That'll be exciting Ooh, for three nice. days, and then off to Dubai to go to some client meetings, and then I'll be home. But I, it, you know, Muscat still has a lot of regulations and force. We need a visa in Arabic. We need to have powers of attorney translated in Arabic, notarized by an Omani lawyer. It's just a lot of new. Procedural issues that we've that we've faced. You need to have a COVID. You need a health coverage for any COVID symptoms or anything that you claim. So you need to have like travel insurance, basically. Right. So it's uh, traveling back in time.
1: Traveling. I was gonna say these are all like non. Uh, until you mentioned the COVID stuff, is like non-COVID related related requirements. Right. It's like <laughs> true. I've I might need to travel to Ivory Coast, and I was looking at all the COVID requirements, and my secretary was like, "Well, you actually need to have a yellow fever vaccine. Have you had that?" And I was like, "What? No. <laughs> well, I don't know because <laughs> I'm so focused on the COVID stuff." Right. Right. Right.
2: To, <laughs> like, it's again, another I'm- kind of vaccine has been top of mind. It's just like one kind of vaccine that we're all thinking about yeah exactly. but apparently
1: there are others it's like me <laughs> getting to the Eurostar and she's like can I see your vaccination status you this and I was like yeah yes yes I've got everything and then she was like can I have your ticket and I was like oh,
0: <laughs> oh but do I have my ticket I don't <laughs> but I'm not sick I can go anywhere
1: <laughs> wait I forgot that was a requirement to buy a ticket yeah
0: <laughs> oh, you hadn't bought a ticket at all no no
1: I had of oh, okay. course but I just couldn't find it in my papers I just because it's so worried about COVID stuff that
0: anyways. It's too funny. Mm-hmm.
2: Is, is today the first episode in the history, or at least in the modern history of the arbitration station, where it will be as short as I think it should always be? Is that what we're about to do? Is that what we're recording now? Or we're Why do you
1: using? want things to be so short, Jill? It's Don't never good idea us? for things to be too short.
2: <laughs> well, this is also because I'm... Working on the arbitrator side of things, and you were working on the council side of things. Oh, very they good. Prefer point. things yeah. to be That's sure, and you're one. like you're charged by the hour, and you like long meetings and long submissions.
1: <laughs> what are you saying? We have an inclination for things to be longer. Instead that, is of segue, mm, that is a good
0: segue, actually.
1: That because is a good segue.
0: Because what is our first topic, though? It has nothing to do with that, does it? <laughs> it? Settlement, did. making things so, longer or shorter than they should be uh okay yeah
2: okay yeah yeah that that works (laughs) Um, in any event we're talking about settlements and how and when and why to settle a case as opposed to have it go all the way to an arbitral award typically because i guess Mm -hmm. we'll talk about it in the context of arbitration Mm -hmm. this being not the litigation station
0: (laughs) or the mediation station
2: (laughs) for that matter And this is also something that we haven't really researched a lot. So I'm looking forward to this off the cuff Mm. recording on a Friday afternoon. We're all very busy. This is the perfect setup for an improvised segment on settlement discussion. Yes.
1: Perfect.
0: Sadia, what are you taking to us? So
1: I'm going to be so happy fun time. Uh, We will talk. I don't know if it's a happy thing or a fun thing, but um, definitely need to talk about slow times. What happens when slow times, and we're going to define what we mean by slow times. I think everybody has a different definition in our practice. What should you do? What should you not do? And so on and so forth. So I'm looking forward to talking about this with you guys because it hasn't been slow for a while.
2: <laughs> no, it, I, exactly. I want to know how do you get to the slow times and mm-hmm. we can talk about the strategies for, for getting there in the first place or <laughs> if it's just random when it happens. Mm. All right. So that's right, that's two. It's not three. We that's have it. the first time in a long time we have no interview and we have only one substantive segment probably because we're all busy. So we haven't had the time to do some research. I'm, I'm aiming for 45 minutes. The listeners will know when we're done if we meet that goal. But that is my goal and I might cut you off if we don't <laughs> seem right. to be making
0: it. Deal. So
2: settlements is what we are talking about. I have some data. We may have some war stories, all of us, but that's also pretty much it. Not a lot of legal research. And, and I thought that's because this isn't typically a legal thing when you settle a case as opposed to finish it in, in adjudication. To me, it's, it feels like something that happens sort of outside of the legal sphere, but, but I don't think that's completely accurate. I can, I can also see Sadia's skepticism on her face of course the settlement ends up typically with some sort of instrument a negotiated settlement and in that sense it's legal but it's not like we have any rules right for like how to settle a thing no we? it's it's all just like contractual freedom like any other contract so maybe we shouldn't talk about the law maybe we should talk about our experience and and the statistics and doing so turning to the data because that's the research that, w- that we do have. It's kind of data-focused. Typically speaking, and there are articles drawing on thousands of international commercial arbitration cases, so we have, we have some data here. Typically speaking, when do you think that a case settles? When in sort of the rough lifespan of a dispute, do you think settlements are the most common?
1: I would say Before when hearing. you file a request for arbitration.
2: I would say right before a hearing. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. I think Sadia is more correct. It's basically, the earlier in the case, the the more likely it is that it will settle. And the further along you get in the case... Then they've already uh, wasted all the time and resources. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You have the sunk cost path dependency problem because then you're, you're so close, you might as well go through with it. Mm-hmm. I don't know if... I was going to say the Vattenfall case settled and that's your experience, Brian, but I also realized you had already left and that wasn't on the eve of the hearing.
0: That was like way after the hearing, which I guess is rare. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. I Yeah, I wonder... Obviously, there were motivations for that typically related to like quantum and the changes in legislation, but... Each and every case is obviously special. But
2: how, if we take one step back, how many cases would you guess settle of all the disputes that like have been formalized in some way, how many do you think settle at any point before reaching any kind of final determination? And we're, again, we're in the world of arbitration here, not in... in court.
1: Wait, so how do you, how would you say formalized? Do you mean you need would you, a dispute, meaning a dispute that has been notified or do you need, mean like a request for arbitration that has been filed?
2: Well, let's, let me see what the data set uses. <laughs>
1: Because that's the problem, I think, Joel. In this data that you're probably going to give up, is it's hard to know. Um, you know, yes, there's data about cases that I think have settled once they've started. You know, that the uh, request for arbitration has been filed. That but you must don't be get, the data set. Yeah, you can't have data for before.
2: Yeah, exactly. no, it is. Yeah, it is. I mean, you, uh, yeah, you're right. You could, but yeah, it is. This is based on like a case has been initiated data. Hmm. So with with that as given, just ballparking it, I'm not going to hold you to this because it's obviously hard to know and not something we think about on an everyday basis.
1: 15%?
0: I was going to say 20, so around there. It's actually 56%. 56%? 56%.
1: There's
0: there's
2: a big caveat to this I want to note, though. I'm basing this off of a study of 4,100 cases in a database of commercial arbitration cases. Uh, and some of them are sorted out for various reasons, so it's 3,750 cases uh, in in this, and 56% of those were settled or withdrawn, which is, of course, a tricky, and it's kind of hard to know. I mean, typically, a settlement is either expressed, I guess, through a settled agreement or just a withdrawal, Mm -hmm. in which case the tribunal doesn't render some sort of award on the settlement doesn't incorporate the settlement the case just goes away and you don't know why there could be other reasons they, mm-hmm. It could be that they changed their minds or you know realized they couldn't afford it or whatever so it's settled or withdrawn that's more than half of cases whereas uh, like a an arbitral award is a little over a third of the cases so it's more common that a case goes away pre-award than it is that it's actually ending in an arbitral award which okay. surprised
0: me as well mm-hmm. That is surprising. Does that mean a yeah. consent award or after an award, final award? No, sorry. Uh,
2: so, so, so I think a consent award would be part of the 56% okay. block, and then the 35% is award that is rendered on the merits. I see. Okay. The, the dispute is actually determined, and the parties remain in dispute all the way until an award decides right. on it. But that's why right. consent award is a good uh, term
0: to use as well. Is that something you have seen in your practice? Yeah. Um, as I've, I've had it as counsel and also as secretary. Um, and I can talk about that because it's quite interesting about the enforceability of those. And
2: Oh yeah, please. And add, add some law.
0: Uh, yeah. We'll so um, <laughs> cons- consent awards are basically the parties reaching an agreement and they have mutually agreed settlement terms and that settlement those settlement terms are put into an award that is memorialized by the arbitrator or the tribunal and then issued as an as an award. And that's usually under the arbitration rules, the institutional rules that you're a part of that you can request a consent award. And because it's mutually agreed between the parties and the arbitrator just takes it as is, they don't change anything or, you know, have any input on that. There's an interesting caveat that people can think about, which is what is the arbitrator actually signing on to when the terms of the award are mutually agreed by the parties and not actually independently reviewed by the arbitrator? For example, if the consent award is used to hide some sort of illegality, um, and they're basically saying, well, we don't want this to go to an award because if it does and goes through document production, maybe they'll reveal something that we don't want to be revealed. And then they agree between them that we're not going to reveal this and we're going to agree on a settlement, and then it goes to a consent award. And then you have a final and binding award that is hiding some sort of illegality. So I thought that to be an interesting caveat to um, the, the, the process. Um, and then enforceability these consent awards are considered arbitral awards and therefore enforceable, but it's not necessarily apparent on its face uh, on the plain text of like the New York Convention or the um, ICSA Convention, I think doesn't say it expressly that you can enforce consent awards. However, it's been interpreted that these are enforceable as, as arbitral awards. So you can um you can seek enforcement. And that's why some people seek consent awards versus settlements, because then you actually have, you know, if you have a settlement agreement, usually you have a dispute resolution clause for that settlement. And then you're basically reinvigorating the process over again, whereas a consent award basically finalizes the terms and gives the enforceability straight away. Mm-hmm. From the from the tribunal side, as a secretary, where I typically see that I, I like the consent award more
2: because that means as a tribunal, or the adjudicator side, you get to see actually what happened, and you get a better understanding. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's, this, is, this is not a concern for the system or for the parties or for anyone. It's just my personal opinion. It's a bit frustrating when you've seen the whole case, and you're interested, and you, you want to see it through, and then you just get an email saying, the parties have agreed to like, suspend the case or withdraw the case, or the claimant right. has agreed to withdraw all its claims, and the respondent does not object. Thank you, bye. And then it's like, what happened? Why? Mm-hmm. Do they afford it? Did they, did they like become friends again and decided to move on with the project? Or are they going to court instead? No it's
1: none of your business, Gerald, is it? <laughs> um.
0: <laughs> get your nose out of their face. <laughs> it has to be a creative though for like, for, the, for, for
2: counsel, I, I, I assume it's kind of a nice, you know, interesting part to be in, especially when you get to draw up a settlement agreement, because yeah. you can use your creativity everything is just like blank page. How do we get to this objective that we mm-hmm. have? And it's not like in your template arbitration step-by-step. Step. It's mm-hmm. more like Where create something from scratch. Yeah, exactly.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting that you say that, that we would be interested to see settlement or that we would be excited to see settlement because I was not excited to be set, see settlement when it was the eve of the hearing, which is why I said it in the initial part that I thought it would be at the eve of the hearing. When you've prepared for cross-examination, I've prepared my opening, I've prepared everything, and then they settle. And I'm like, and the ego is just like, (laughs) just wanted my time. I wanted my experience. And that is actually (laughs) something I wanted to raise to you guys is that there are competing incentives inherent in the adjudicated process, which is lawyers charging fees and the incentive to basically do their job. And then you have the incentives of, the parties, which is to reach some commercially agreeable terms and promote some sort of long-term relationship, if they're in some sort of long-term relationship, and there's also predictability in the process for the parties. When, if you, you know, as counsel, you just give a percentage likelihood of success to your client, and that's really all you can say, and you're like, I don't know what's going to happen, I don't know what the other side's going to put forward. But when you have settled agreement, you have predictability on the terms. And that is not necessarily the case when they go through a full arbitration. So you have these competing incentives. And I think we all, as counsel, need to look at the the incentives of the client as your your primary goal. And often that gets lost in the weeds.
1: Have you never built your fee agreement um, on, Mm -hmm. on sediments? I mean, I've done that in the past. And so your interests are aligned. Yeah, you know, exactly. you get uh, if you have, for example, a success fee, the success fee, success define success. Success could be, you know, depending mm-hmm. on whether you're claimant or defendant, whatever. But um, you know, it could also be that finding a settlement is a success. Absolutely. And and so everyone's interests are aligned. Um,
2: any any settlement a success or just a well, settlement that's no, defined not. as like,
1: no, that's that's the thing. You need to you need to clarify you know clarify what, clear, what yeah. that would mean <laughs> uh, i think and that's a complication because you don't really know at the time what would be acceptable to you because at the time of a dispute everyone's super super angry and they're claiming you know millions billions sometimes and <laughs> You know, as the, the case progresses and uh, I imagine there's a lot of settlements happening, of course, at the beginning, but also during, you know, like, like Brian said, I think before a hearing or maybe after a hearing, also when you've heard witnesses and every, you've seen all the documents and all of this and you, you think, okay, let's reassess um, and let's settle on that amount. Um, and it's hard to pinpoint that amount from the outset. It's hard.
0: And yeah. also uh, to put a, a wrinkle in that, what if you're representing the respondent? Yeah, and then you're not really successful if the damages get lowered. So we've actually built into yeah. one of our engagement letters is that the reduction in claim is right a marker of success.
1: Yeah, it is. It's a marker of success, and. Um, it's true. Another time where I've seen sentiments happen, which I was completely, honestly uh, skeptical about, <laughs> and I have to say, it actually worked. And you, you remember how we had? Um, I think we had a session, a podcast session on dispute boards, or at least mm-hmm. construction arbitration. So I was in, involved in a dispute board and the dispute board proceedings, they're almost like mini arbitrations, really. So you've got, um, it's not even mini. For me, there was like, you know, a site visit, um, factual witnesses, experts, <laughs> pleadings, and all that jazz, you know? And I was thinking <laughs> to myself, like, what, what? I mean, what's the point of all of this? It, it's, it's if after you also go to an arbitration. Well, the point was that the party settle after that. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, and apparently it happens very often because it is still a bit of a shorter and quick and dirtier procedure than than arbitration. And all the cards are on the table and uh, and, you know, they can decide or not to, um, you know, move forward with the arbitration or settle.
2: Right. Right. I think this is there's something in that as well, explaining why cases settle more in the early phase than in the later phase. It's not just that the costs have been incurred later.
0: Mm-hmm. It's also
2: that in the early stage of the arbitration, for the first time maybe in in the history of what could have been a, a dispute running for a while, you get things on the table. You may have had a disagreement for a long time, but once an arbitration is filed as a request and there might be a response, then each side is in a much better position to sort of figure out what the... Cost-benefit analysis is, and what their position is, and that of course informs any settlement discussion. You're not doing it in a void. You're doing it with like knowing what the claims are, what the amounts are, and you know you can see if you have a good case or not.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
2: Another thing that came out of this data set, and I should say for the record, and for those who are very interested in this, that there's a series of Glo- uh, Kluber Arbitration blog posts by. Brian Canada and Debbie and Bill Slate about this with all these, like the 4,000 arbitral awards. Another thing that came out, which I think may add another caveat to the whole uh, 56% of cases settle thing, is that in uh, low-value cases, the settlement rate is much higher. And by contrast, in high-value cases, the settlement rate is much lower.
0: That makes sense. So
2: this, 50, this 56% is an average, obviously, but in, in cases that are like 1 million pounds, a dollar, I think, or less, it is more like 60, 70%. And for bigger cases, it's much lower down in the 30s. That makes sense.
0: I have a question for you, Joel. Oh, great. The arbitra- from the arbitration side, from the arbitrator side, excuse me,
2: should an yeah, arbitrator... Did, did you just promote me? Yes, I did.
0: What the role of the arbitrator in all of this, I don't know if you've seen anything, but the um, should the arbitrator actively promote settlement and how can they actively promote settlement um, and whether their engagement in settlement, whether it's informal in settlement negotiation or an actual ARB-MED ar- situation, how the arbitrator's role could in promoting settlement could actually jeopardize their impartiality or appearance of impartiality mm-hmm. and, um, and whether it needs to be subject to party agreement and, and these types of considerations. I don't know if you've seen that in your experience.
2: The uh, short answer is, is, is no. I, I've never experienced this on any case that I've been working on myself mm-hmm. in arbitration. But I will say when I was clerking in, in a Stockholm court it was interesting to see because it's actually it's it's literally Swedish law as it is in many civil law countries in particular, I think that judges have a duty to try in civil disputes, private law disputes, to try to make the parties reach a settlement. And it was amazing watching judges do that in real time. There were different models and approaches, and you would have like preparatory meetings and you would talk to the parties separately. And it's a clerk, it was amazing to see that. But that's also because that then if, if it fails and for some reason some party is unhappy with the judge because the judge may have had to show his or her hand or you know, give mm-hmm. away a preliminary determination of the merits or whatever, you just get another judge from the same court to hear the merits, no problemo. But if you're an arbitrator, it doesn't really work like that. And I think most arbitrators would be pretty reluctant to tip their hand and engage in trying to encourage or guide a settlement discussion, because that would essentially mean that if you fail, yeah. it would be very hard to be the arbitrator than hearing the merits. I'm sure it could yeah. happen and it probably does happen, but it, there's a big risk.
1: But that's also not their role also, right? I mean, that's not their role. They're not, they're not engaged to, um, to, I mean, literally they are, they're supposed to settle the dispute, but not to find a settlement. They're supposed mm-hmm. to resolve the dispute. Um, and I've actually witnessed firsthand um, a very complicated case where um, the parties just couldn't find an agreement. They tried to settle multiple times. There were some breaks in the proceedings. <laughs> uh, Brian, same, same thing just before a hearing. I remember once traveling for a hearing and everything was in order. And, and you, you know, had traveled how- to the hearing? I traveled to the hearing oh, in advance no. <laughs> to set everything up. OK, and that's the time when I was in New York. So I traveled in, in Sweden um, and, and the translators were there. The, we had paralegals there. We had people to project documents that were there. I mean, name it. OK, and literally just a few a day before everybody else was supposed to arrive, which was two days before the hearing, um, we got a note from our clients saying that they entered into discussions and so they wanted to postpone the hearing. So that was crazy. Terrible. Yeah, that's just just crazy.
2: Yeah, then you had shooting. a
0: vacation. <laughs> we'll
1: talk about this in the second segment. I think they're they're quite related <laughs> good point. actually. I agree.
0: That's with a that. good
1: segue. That's a good segue. But but just to say that in a complicated, you know, in complicated cases, you see sometimes a tribunal pushing the parties for settlement. You know, they're like, you know, this is complicated. Maybe you guys could talk it through and and it's a bit frustrating because you're like, well, we tried and we are going mm. forward. So your role is to just just resolve the dispute now. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> We're not asking you to be mediator or uh, that's not your role here.
0: I read a couple of tools that tribunals can use without actually actively promoting settlement, Ooh, which okay. is mm. in the CMC, whether they basically have some, um, they can express or imply some preliminary views as far as the actual items in dispute. So maybe not settle, but minimize the scope of what the parties are talking about. I had in Vattenfall actually, um, after right before the hearing, they sent tribunal questions, which was the list of about 15 questions. Um, and you really got an insight in what the arbitrators were really interested in. Um, and that could, it didn't in that case, or maybe it did, but in that, in some cases it could show your hands a little bit on what the arbitrator is interested in. If that is against your client's interest, you'd be, you'd be like, look, this, the predictability of this case is that you're probably not going to win based on the questions we're getting. Um, you can, or the tribunal can do uh, some sort of minimizing the scope of the arbitration, for example, lim- limiting document production or um examinations, for example, if they think that they can or that they know a certain expert isn't needed or, you know, things like that, they can take a more active hand. There is a problem about due process, of course. Um, So it would have to be uh, ultimately the consent of the parties. But I think there are ways for a tribunal to casually show their hand um, without actually actively promoting settlement. I think experienced
2: arbitrators as well are good at Judging when it is a good time mm-hmm. to do that, which which kind of dispute, which kind of parties, which mm-hmm. kind of lawyers, like when when might it be wise to to try to steer the parties in one direction? You know, if, if you know that they're experienced, they have a long standing relationship, this is mm-hmm. one out of many disputes, but the parties are still working together on other projects, so maybe that would be a good time to to be a little you know sort of hint at your prima facie of feeling mm-hmm. if, if there is one in the tribunal is in an agreement. And in other cases, you know, it's like many investors mm-hmm cases for example where it's a project is just like it's gone and everyone hates each other and they have been uh, loggerheads for a decade Mm -hmm. it's not it's not very likely that you'll just like magically draw a settlement out of a hat when they have been fighting for years already exactly
1: that's a good point that you're making jill because i was surprised by your data because i think i've seen data published by exit i don't have it under my eyes with um, the number of of um, if we'll exit actually exit awards that were settled or withdrawn, it was much lower. <clears throat> it was more around 20 percent. That's what I thought, and I think it goes back to your point that you just made, which is excellent. Is like commercial and commercial arbitration, maybe there's this repeat business element to it, mm-hmm. right? Um, and yeah. business perspective, which which maybe trumps the political side of hatred. <laughs> <laughs> investment <laughs> treaty, which doesn't often exist in in commercial arbitration, I mean, except uh, when you uh, deal with states, of course. Mm-hmm. But, uh,
2: yeah, An investment arbitration is more often than a commercial arbitration, the last resort, I think. Exactly. Like the last thing you yeah. try when everything yeah. else has failed. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a common factor. It happens obviously in commercial cases too, but it's also more common that you have commercial cases that are part of a much bigger matrix of relationships yeah. and disputes and contracts and Many other things at play that also gives you something to play with when you're trying to settle. And it's not mm-hmm. one side saying the state took my factory and the state saying, yeah, we did so, but it was for good reason. But in any event, there's no factory and your company is gone. So mm-hmm. I have lost track of time. I was, I, I was, it was a full segment. In, in the beginning, it's a yeah, full
1: it segment. I think we spent 40 minutes or something. I don't know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> We're trying to get away from your goals, Joel. Happy fun time, then. Yeah, let's slow it down for some happy fun time.
1: So picture this. Um, You're about to, you've worked for hours and hours and months, to not say months, um, on a case you're overworked. Um, and, uh, in fact, the case was so important that it was, um, hundred percent of your occupation. So you were not staffed on any other case because it was so such a huge case. And then all of a sudden you receive a message that the clients have settled (laughs) going back to the previous (laughs) previous Ah! segment. Um, it has happened to me. Has it happened to any of you?
2: Yes. No.
1: Okay, so it has happened to Brian.
2: I will say that I look at this from a completely different vantage point. I know what you're about to talk about will, will be relevant for me as well, but as a tribunal secretary, and I think also as a full-time arbitrator, if you have 5, 10, 15, 20 cases and one settles, you just cheer because mm-hmm. that means one, <laughs> one thing is off your docket and you can move <laughs> on to the other case. That you work on. You're never in a position where one case is 100% of your work. It's just amazing when it settles. But I, I, I understand the general setup that you were typically very busy and all of a sudden. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I mean, I was being a bit dramatic by saying it's 100% of your book, but you see what I'm getting at, right? So you're super, super busy and all of a sudden your schedule is clear, like 100% and not for a day, for days to come. <laughs> and this is what I would say is um, when things get slow in our, in our life, when things get slow, we have, I don't know if we chair, Joel. I did. The first feeling that we get, I think it depends on your level of seniority, probably. But when you're very junior, you're like probably chairing and going back to bed <laughs> to catching up on the <laughs> sleep. Right. But I think the more senior you get, um, you get this overwhelming feeling of, oh, what am I going to do now? You know?
2: Right. Because like you how yeah, but your, your business depends on you being able to bill your time. And if you don't have action of like, what am I gonna do tomorrow? That essentially means that your your business isn't making money, which is gonna hurt you if that exactly. becomes a
1: problem. Exactly. And it's a bit irrational because you've been billing crazy for the past, but you're always looking ahead, right? So you're like, What's my next move? What's my next plan? And you have this kind of guilty consciousness thing going on in you, which which prevents you from just Going on vacation or doing whatever, and so this is what the segment is about: is what should we do or not do? What do you guys do when things are slow? And this is like a dramatic example, but there are multiple times, right, when you just file in in our in our life, it's very cyclical, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) We have a calendar, we file our um, you know submissions. Are we going a hearing? And then we wait for the other party to respond. And of course, we have other cases ongoing and it depends. And the ideal mix is once you file, then you open up the other other case that you have where you have to file again, right? Right. And things kind of shape up in Lego form so that you have 100% occupancy, 100% of the time and so on and so forth. But we all know it never works really kind of like that because we're not managed properly. Um, and so, what and you can predict
2: had- as well. There there are unknowns. Yeah. You, it depends on what comes through the door, what the schedule is. But, but I think what we say as disputes lawyers compared to other types of specializations within law firms, we always say our work is more cyclical. It's easier to plan ahead. Sure, there are ups and downs, but you generally know in advance when there are ups and downs. You can plan your mm-hmm. life. You You can go to you can can take a a holiday or you can go to a wedding or whatever because you know there's nothing in that calendar and you know that a year in advance because you know what what the timelines are for all your cases but uh, it, it isn't always like that in practice
1: no, no, it's it's really un. You you can't predict, and I, I know I get that all the time from my other half. He's like, "You knew you had this filing. <laughs> why are you filing at five in the morning? Why, 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 why?"
0: <laughs> oh dear.
1: And oh gosh, I I mean I'm not gonna speak about that last filing I did, but yeah, it's it's always like this. there's Always stuff that you can predict, but that then the question is we are trained to be flexible. We're supposed to be flexible weekends, late nights, not all the time. We're supposed to be responsive. You know, our client is king. Our client is, you know, depending on where you are in the, in the chain is either your senior associate, your partner, or the end actual GC client giving you instruction. There's always going to be someone (laughs) that you have to respond to. Um, and you're asked to be completely flexible. And what happens when you have a clear clear schedule? It really should be a no-brainer, guys. You should just go home and make cookies. (laughs) (laughs) Why don't we do that? Why? Why are we chained to our desk and feel guilty about leaving at three in the afternoon when we have been in the office until four in the morning for three days in a row? Why is it like that?
0: Because that's not how your compensation works. Yay!
2: (laughs) I also think there's a related problem, uh, having to do with this like Type A world that we're in, and we're all the three of us guilty of this as well. Even if you're not doing actual billable work, it's not like your schedule is empty because there are other extracurriculars going on. There's a podcast to record. Mm -hmm. There's there's a conference to attend or speak at. There's a mentoring program. An article to write. uh, (laughs) Like a, a professional group that you're a member of that has a, yeah. an annual meeting or there's always gonna yeah. be something so you you would rarely get that like what do i do now but i you, know if if you do i i haven't but when if you do i assume it will freak you out
1: i know and you hit the nail on the head Jill. it's like it never stopped, right because the minute the minute you file that submission your inbox is looking like Like you've got a thousand unread messages, a million calls to return. And, and yeah, like you say, even if it's not billable work, first of all, you got to sort out the billable, non-important work Mm -hmm. (laughs) put aside. And then also you have to manage all the other stuff that you're supposed to be doing. And even the stuff that you're not supposed to be doing, then you start engaging yourself to do it because you're like oh I'm free so I can write an article I can do business Mm -hmm. development I'll go for lunch to look for clients and I'll speak to that conference and it's just it's work it's not you know yeah it's it's non-billable work but it's work
0: so are you promoting an alternative
1: I'm saying we should all go bake cookies sorry when we have time (laughs) Uh, I
0: yeah I would say you know like go on as you say like take some time off no one ever uses all of their vacation oh no that's why law firms give unlimited vacation because you never take it mm-hmm. but the I I agree with you but like when you book a trip you can't we we call our schedules predictable but they're actually not predictable at all and mm. well, it's more predictable than an MA lawyer but it's not predictable in the sense that I don't know how many vacations I've had that I was like after this hearing yeah I am going far far away I'm not mm. going to bring my computer I'm just going to disconnect and it's like actually we're going to have a really tight uh post hearing brief schedule because we just want to get it over and you're like <laughs> oh god
1: <laughs> I know I mean honestly this is more like the psychoanalys- psychoanalysis I can't even see the word the word like a, a psychoanalysis a, yeah. a, yes psychoanalysis because I haven't taken vacation for so long I can't get to it I can't every time I say this, Brian, exactly. I'm like, okay, after this, like I'm taking one day. It's not even a week. It's like right. oh, a day off, a day off just to, whew. and uh, it's like, um, you, you can't, there's always stuff. <laughs> and the thing is, when I say you can't, it's actually not true. You always can, right? Because if you schedule time for work, then you can schedule time for yourself, guys. Mm-hmm. And why don't we do that? It's, uh, so I, yes, I will advocate having completely failed at it. I'm telling people we should do it. We should totally schedule time in for ourselves. I think the you said it's not like our compensation work. Our compensation is related to the hours we build. If we've built enough hours, yeah. we feel that we've built enough hours for a, a month or whatever it is. You were you allowed to take some time off to breathe and to take some time off. And like you say, we have some vacation. And a lot of us don't take the vacation. Mm-hmm. If we had data on the unused vacation it would be terrifying to see yeah. that in our field it's crazy I've heard so many people say I haven't taken a vacation for three years I haven't taken a vacation why
0: yeah that's terrible
1: what's going on you know um so that yeah scares
2: me always I have I have never not taken all of my vacation I think in my uh,
1: oh my god Jill, but that's the way to do it Jill saying that with his open shirt <laughs>
0: I, I think that so you have to celebrate the small victories, right? The second you have a day off, it's not about yes. filling your time. And obviously, within reason, you shouldn't just like scat off every every chance you can. But no, it's, no, no. it's about taking that moment, taking that breath, enjoying that one day and actually and actually taking it. Because um, this is a uh, newsflash, your career is 45 years along. So uh, if you're if you think that it's sustainable to act like that, then you you're gonna burn out or have some other thing. Yeah. that's gonna. I was waiting you. for the it's a marathon, not a sprint. There cliche. it is. <laughs> I have I have another saying for you because a, a really good friend of mine works in HR and um she was talking about hierarchies and how she handles it and how she can- counsels people that are dealing with really strong hierarchies and she says people treat you how you allow them to treat you. And mm. this goes to your point about um, always being available, always working, mm. never taking mm. vacation. If I'm a senior partner, guess who I'm going to give work to? Yeah, exactly. The person. So it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And it doesn't mean that you are a lax employee if you take a five-day vacation yeah, or say, no. I can't do that right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I know, I, <laughs> I know that's the thing. If, uh, when you're looking for people uh, for work and they just respond, well, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm on holiday or I'm on my leave. Then what are you going to say? You're not going to be like, oh, they're slacking or whatever. You're like, oh, okay, I'll just manage around it. I'll find other people. Um, and it, and you make it work. So you should make it work both ways. Um, also That's for, firm yours, culture. for yourself. That's yeah. firm
0: culture as well. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah.
2: I think this is the least French side of you, Sadia, that you're constantly working, constantly available. Because if it's something that your people has managed to refine, it's the art. No, no, I like don't like want to. <laughs> out of the office, long lunch. <laughs> i don't want to say
1: bad press for the firm it has nothing to do with the firm or it's it's really just it's been i think it's it's related to um you know the COVID stuff honestly i think because we're so used to working from home and you always have that feeling that you're not working properly because you're at home but in fact you're actually working more hours you know yeah and then Uh, there was there was this time where you were kind of i think anxious during COVID as so we, we kind of pitch for you, you pitch for a lot of work, you do a lot of stuff and you have all these engagements and, um, but it's, it's, it's normal. It's just, it's just, everything can be done within reason. If you accord yourself some time, I guess, and slow down. So slow down people. And uh, smell their roses, like we say, sometimes when they're just in front of you, (laughs) take the time to stop and don't feel guilty about it. Because, you know, we keep telling all these, the juniors, like, you should be more present. You should publish articles. You should do conferences and da da da. And, you know, and I mean, come on, exhibit A, you know, all of us, we do that, you know, Mm -hmm. we're constantly on conferences, talking this podcast, this, this, this. And so I'm sure, you know, the younger generation is like, oh, my gosh. Okay, so I have to work and I have to do this and. Well, yeah, but you can also make it at your rhythm. Don't think like it never stops. You mm-hmm. should. Um, so, yeah. Um. Anyways, would you, why am how, I? How
2: would you rate yourself when it comes to saying no to things now? Because I think typically you get better at it as you get older. Or at least that's the idea. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious. This is this is therapy, guys.
0: This is a happy fun time. On a scale oh, of one to gosh. ten, how good are you at saying
2: no to things you
0: should say no to? Uh, zero but as far as taking holiday i'm i'm pretty good <laughs>
1: uh yeah i'm not good at all not good at all
0: practice what so. you preach
1: i know exactly this is the object of the session no yeah no i think that's that's related the slowness and the learning to say no also mm-hmm. um and uh, it comes with
0: a lot of practice i think
1: to, to be able to to say no to things yeah, because you can't you can't be everywhere. You can't deliver on everything.
0: And that's really good to set expectations because I've said yes to things while I'm on vacation, but I've given it a scope, right? I'd like, mm-hmm. I have to get to the airport in two hours so I can dedicate two hours to this. Or, you know, and then at least there's an expectation and then the other side, the person in the office yeah. can make a determination whether it's worth ruining right. your holiday for. But I think a lot of people don't say a word. yeah. Just say, yes I, can, yes, I can do this. And then they're connecting their phone to their computer in the airport and they're like yelling <laughs> at the that... stewardess not to take off.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I know. I've seen so many people taking calls in the airport and you're just like, wait, why is it? How important is this that you can't? And it's always important, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the question is, you know, am I really being asked? Or is this mm-hmm. like an instruction? Is also the thing, like, can I say no? Mm-hmm. Um, I think for non billable stuff, Honestly, um, there's always scope to say no, <laughs> but then then there's this this um, you know uh, we're all struggling with oh I'm gonna miss something out you know so we've got we all have FOMO right you're like oh if I had done this I would have gotten this out of it and I didn't do it and blah, 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 and you beat yourself to it but you you can always do much more than what you're doing but you can also really do less and still be okay
0: <laughs>
2: yeah exactly <laughs> amen Preach, more. I'll follow that rule I think three out of five has always put my life ambition like the bar that I set everything at if, if you do three out of five you don't have to be the best you just have to be slightly better than average like work slightly more than average and perform three out of five That's not the, you know, perfection is our standard that most law firms run with. That's my personal Mm. standard, just to be nice to myself. There you go.
0: No shame. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's a good one. That's a good one. Yeah. So anyway, so speaking
0: of slow, should we enjoy our weekends then?
1: That's what I was going to say. That's a great segue to say, let's slow it down this segment. And I think, yeah. Why don't you send us your comments and um and keep them coming? We've we've had some really good comments from the previous episodes and we love reading them. So please keep them keep sending them to us.
0: Amen.
2: Especially those that suggest that we shouldn't do this without Brian, because it's better. More of that.
0: (laughs) One percent resentment.
1: Especially the ones with the title. We are fans. We love those as well. So keep them coming. Those
0: are great. All right, guys. All right. Next
1: time, maybe without Jewel.
0: Yeah, exactly.